Welcome to Shelter Cove. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find encouragement through today's message. For more information, check us out online at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text at 209-340-3115. Hey, welcome everybody. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bibles, do me a favor and grab them. Open up with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. We are in week two of our series called More Than a Game. Uh, The heartbeat behind this series, as we're starting to kick the new year off and and get the new year rolling, we wanted to remind ourselves that life is far more than just a game. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Life is not a game to be played carelessly. Like we believe as Christians that life is a game to be played with great strategy, with great purpose, with great intentionality. And, And we wanted to spend the next couple of weeks looking more detailed, looking at a more detailed way how we actually live that out. Uh, So last week, Pastor Ed gave a great sermon uh, using the board game of life uh, and what he was trying to answer uh, the question of what are the best, wisest decisions that I can make through the course of my life? I thought he gave just an incredibly helpful and practical sermon. If you missed that, go ahead, check it out online. You can find it on our uh, YouTube page, on our website. Very, very helpful. Uh, Today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about surgery. Uh, we're going to talk about a surgery that, that all Christians undergo. And to uh, talk about surgery, we're going to use this old little game here, this little gem called Operation. Uh, if you've never played Operation, the whole gist of this is you got to pull out certain little body parts using these tweezers. But if you touch one of the metal sides, well, then you're going to get the buzzer. And, and this version is actually pretty nice and gentle. The old version I remember playing had one of the most terrible buzzing sounds that would scare you half to death. Uh, now, in my own personal life, I've been pretty fortunate. I've really only had like two major operations. Uh, I went under the knife for my wisdom teeth. And then uh, when I was in fifth grade, I actually woke up one morning, about four in the morning, with a really severe stomach pain. Uh, I thought maybe I just had too many hot Cheetos the night before and had to go handle some business, but that wasn't the case. This pain progressed from being very uncomfortable to very severe and then went from very severe to the worst pain my little 10-year-old body had ever felt. Uh, I remember my mom. uh, My mom was suspicious of me. She thought I was just trying to get out of school that morning. Uh, she was like, honey, you need to get dressed. You're going to school. Uh, just go sit on the toilet. You probably just have some gas. You probably just have some stomach issues going on. Uh, and when she finally caved in and let me stay home from school and saw that I wasn't getting any better, that my pain was actually getting worse, the light bulb went off and, and she thought, well, maybe we need to get this kid to the doctor. Uh, we go to the pediatrician and I'll never forget this. The pediatrician takes her hand and she puts it right here on my lower abdomen and she pushes in on my stomach and I felt immediate relief. Like all this pain I had been in for all this time like washed away, all of it was gone. And then the doctor pulled her hand off my stomach and it felt like somebody was driving a rusty railroad spike into my stomach. The pediatrician looks at my mom and says, Mrs. Blackman, your son is having an appendicitis. We need to get him into surgery like five minutes ago. 
within the hour, I am laid out on the table under anesthesia and they are cutting out my appendix. And my poor mom still to this day has to hear about the time that her 10-year-old son had an appendicitis and she thought he just had gas. Uh, I tell you this story today because as I told you, we're going to talk about surgery. There's a type of surgery all Christians undergo. It, it is a universal experience for all of us. It's a transplant of sorts. It's the removal of something cold and dead, and in its place is put something alive and vibrant. And this takes me to our Ezekiel text today. So uh, the book of Ezekiel, very chaotic time for the nation of Israel. They've been captured by the Babylonians and taken out of their homeland. Ezekiel prophesies much of this book from what we would consider to be a, a, an ancient concentration camp. And in the, the gloom of this despair and in the gloom of these uncertain times the Israelites face, Ezekiel prophesies one of the most beautiful verses in, in all of the Old Testament. So check this out with me. This is Ezekiel 36. We'll pick it up here in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Would you join me in prayer real quick? Jesus, as always, uh, we need your help. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would illuminate what we are about to see. Uh, may we grasp it in our minds, and more importantly, Lord, would we put into practice what your word is going to lay before us. Uh, encourage us, God. Teach us. Correct us. Mold us more into the image of your Son. Uh, I am insufficient for that task, Lord. That's why I'm praying you would join us. You would be here to do the heavy lifting. Uh, God, may I just simply say what the word has to say today. Um, we love you. Thank you, God, for a chance to gather like this. In your name, amen. So right out of the gates, I want to be up front with you. I, I want to tell you what my intention is for our time together today. My goal today is to try and convince you. I, I want to convince you to let God do soul surgery on you. Uh, 
If you're anything like me, the idea of undergoing surgery doesn't sound very appealing. Like even if you know that there's some things in your life you need God to work on, even if you know you are not exactly where God would want you to be, uh, the idea of surrendering and let him have control of your life, let him uh, do his work on you is frightening uh, because the potential is there for God to cut some things out of our lives that we hold very near and dear. Uh, So my goal today is to try and convince you that grass is greener on the other side. That although surgery and although undergoing the knife can be painful, what God has after that is far, far better than staying in our sickness, than, than being too afraid to step out and trust God. Uh, And and what we'll see here in this passage are a couple of reasons why God is just a good, faithful surgeon. And I want to show you those today. So here's my first reason why we should trust God to do surgery on us. God acts for the glory of his holy name. God acts here for the glory of his holiness. Look at 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So here's what this text just said. I'm not about to move just because I pity you. I'm not about to do something incredible just because I love you, although that is true. I'm not about to do an incredible redemptive work just because I have compassion on you, although that is true. I'm about to do something because I am going to vindicate my holy name. What God just told the Israelites is that you guys have ruined my reputation. You guys have profaned my name amongst the nations. You were supposed to go out and be a light to them, but you have blown it. You have actually dragged my name through the mud. Now God's going, it's up to me to vindicate my holiness, to make my name great where you have trashed it. And I'll tell you why this is very comforting to me. I'll tell you why this is very uh, like a warm blanket for my soul. If God is acting on his behalf, like if God has skin in the game to redeem and to reconcile us, to make us new creations, if he's got skin in the game, do you think he's going to fail? Like how awesome is it that God acts because he loves us and because he has compassion on us? But how much cooler is it if he does that and also is trying to vindicate his own name? See, this makes me feel very, very confident in God. This is like a warm comfort for my heart when doubt starts to set in. Because if God is going to act for the glory of his name, like if his reputation is on the line, church, I I just got to believe that he's not going to fail. He's not going to blow this. He's going to accomplish what he set out to do. I'd be the first one to tell you that uh, right here, standing before you, uh, I am not content with where my Christian walk is. Like, I I wish I was further along in my walk with the Lord. I I wish I could obey more. I I wish I had more of God. I'm still prone to go to sin that I know is damaging and hurtful. 
I wish I had more. And sometimes I get frustrated with the pace at which I mature. This text is a nice little counterbalance to that frustration because it reminds me, hey, God is, is he's in control. I, I am moving right along to his schedule. It helps me remember, man, he, he will start this good work and he'll be faithful to finish it out. One of the reasons why he's such a worthy, good, faithful soul surgeon is because he's not acting just for our benefit. He's acting for his benefit, for the glory of his name. And if his name is on the line, church, he's not going to fail. He will not fail in his redemptive work here. Now, there's a little prophecy that comes into play here in verse 24. Man, I wish I could spend more time on this, but let's, we'll just fly over at about 10,000 feet here and, and we'll move on to 25. Verse 24 says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Uh, so the Jews go into exile in Babylon for roughly 70 years. And, and after that, uh, a good portion of them are able to go back to the land of Israel. Uh, so this prophecy of God bringing the Jews back to Israel has a little bit of its fulfillment quickly. But then what happens, the, the Greeks conquer the known world, the Romans conquer the known world, uh, the Romans will sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple, the Jews are dispersed once again amongst the nations, and for almost 2,000 years the Jews are spread out amongst the world, until 1948, at, at the end of World War II, when Israel becomes a sovereign nation once again. And since 1948, what we have seen, like in real time, you can watch this today, it's happening before our very eyes. This prophecy is starting to be fulfilled. Millions and millions of Jews from Europe, Asia, Africa, North and South America have left their homes and moved back to Israel. I just think that's pretty crazy that, that we could look here in this prophecy in this text that was written thousands of years ago and see it playing out in real time today. But like I said, we just don't have time to swim in those deep waters. Let me, let me show you here what 25 says, and we'll get to the next reason why we can trust God. 25 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Here's the next reason why we can trust God, why we can let him do soul surgery on us. God cleanses us from all our filthiness. I don't want to be dramatic here. Like, I'm, I'm really not trying to be dramatic. Uh, this is coming from a place of a little bit of life experience, a little bit of ministry experience. What I'm about to say next is probably going to be the hardest part of this sermon for a lot of you to really grab. Like what I'm about to tell you is going to be the hardest part for you to understand because I believe there's a misconception in your brain about how God works, about how your relationship with God plays out. This misconception gets drilled into us by all kinds of other uh, entities, social circles, infrastructure in our life, like all kinds of things in our life play into how this misconception breeds in our brain. 
Here's what the misconception is. You ready? The misconception goes like this. I obey, therefore I am clean. My good deeds are what make me clean before God. And this text here in Ezekiel straps dynamite to that idea, to that misconception, and explodes it into a thousand pieces. One of the greatest misunderstandings about Christianity and about God is is mistakenly thinking that we earn God's favor by bringing our morality to his feet and saying, are we acceptable because we've done this? Like if if you look through the Bible, man, what, what the Bible calls our good deeds is offensive. Uh, Our good deeds, our external morality does nothing to fix the inner condition of the heart. Like it does absolutely nothing to fix us. And this is what is so radical about Christian theology. Because what Christian theology, what the Christian gospel is going to preach and will preach unforgivingly is that God is the active agent of our forgiveness. God is the one who is active in cleansing us. We are passive recipients. Like, let me show you just once again what it said here. This is so important. I will sprinkle clean water on you. So this is Old Testament imagery. Uh, One of the ways the Jews would cleanse things, they'd take uh, water on their fingers, they would sprinkle it onto things. This would represent uh, being purified, being cleaned. God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I want you to just pay attention, 25, 26, 27, these next verses, pay attention to how many times God says, I will. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will cleanse you. How does this work? Like, how does this happen? How is God forgiving and washing away and cleansing us? Like, does this happen when we get baptized and get dunked underwater? Not really. External water does nothing to cleanse the inner condition of the heart. Uh, Leviticus, a book I'm sure that you all love and are deeply familiar with. Uh, Leviticus 17 explains how sin and blood work together. It it explains the relationship between the two. I remember when I was new in Christianity, that seemed weird to me. Why does the Bible talk about blood all the time in relation to sin? That seemed kind of barbaric. Uh, Here's what Leviticus 17 says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Uh, and, And here's why. Leviticus 17 goes on to say, the life of the animals in the blood, and Romans 5 will say that sin leads to death. So if you're going to cancel the wages of sin, there needs to be life to cancel it out. The debt is death, and the payment must be life in the form of blood. That's how we pay the debt. That's how we cancel it out. Here's the problem with the Old Testament sacrifices. There are not enough sheep and bulls and lambs on the planet to sufficiently atone for all the sin that we rack up. So then Jesus in the upper room just before he's going to be betrayed to the Roman guards. He holds up the cup of wine and he, and he says, this is my blood 
which will be poured out for you in the new covenant. That's what Ezekiel is hinting at here. He's hinting at the new covenant. The work of Jesus is what he's talking about. He says, this is my blood which will be poured out for you. What makes Jesus' sacrifice of blood so much better than the sheeps and bulls and goats is that Jesus possesses eternal life. Like, let me put some numbers to it. Maybe this will make it clear to you. Uh, let's say I live 90 years and, and I, commit, I commit a million sins a year. That's probably being conservative. Let's say I, I do a million sins every year for 90 years. That means I've stacked up 90 million sins that need to be atoned for. 90 million deaths, if you will. The wages of sin is death. How much life does Jesus have to cancel that out? Eternal like, I don't even make a dent into his life, into his righteousness, into his forgiveness. I don't even, it's a drop in the bucket. Like, my sin is buried under the tidal wave of atonement by his blood. This is how it works. This is why Christians are, are so excited and geeked up about the blood of Jesus. Because we see his eternal life has been shed and poured out to cancel our sin. So when God says here, I will cleanse you, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about his son coming to rescue us. And we're passive in it. All we do is receive. We don't add to it. We don't supplement it. God doesn't go 80% of the way and expect us to go the remaining 20. God does this perfectly, sufficiently, and completely through his son. All we do is wrap our arms around it and say thank you. He cleans us. But that's not all. 26. Here's where the surgery comes in. 25 is like, like the pre-op cleaning. This is where God gets the scalpel out. 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In your notes, we'll say it this way. God empowers us to walk in obedience. This is one of the most beautiful, hopeful texts in all of the Old Testament. Because God just said, I, I understand what's really broken in you. I know that the root issue of what's causing all your disobedience is the broken, sin-infected, hard, dead heart that resides in you. Like not our physical beating heart. Uh, when I say heart, I mean like, like your person, like your soul, like the, the seat of who you are. That's what he's talking about. He goes, I know that it's, it's jacked up by sin. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to cut that old dead heart out. And in its place, I'm going to put a heart that is soft, vibrant, responsive to the things of God. A heart where the Spirit of God himself dwells. And I love what the text says here. I will cause you. I'm going to make you. Like, I'm going to lead you into walking in my statutes, following in my different ways, following in deeper and deeper obedience. 
Because like, can we, can we just be honest for a second? How many times have you known the right thing to do, but felt no desire, felt no motivation, felt no empowerment to do it? And we don't end up doing it. Here God's saying, I'm going to address that problem. I will fix that problem. I'm going to do surgery on you. Now, this is crazy. I, I want you to see this here. Did you, did you catch the order of how getting right with God happens? We come dirty. We come jacked up. We come full of sin. And he cleans us. Obedience hasn't even really happened yet. He cleans us first. We are declared righteous. We are declared spotless. We're declared holy by God. He has cleansed us by the blood of his son. And then... The heart that was cold and dead gets cut out and in its place is put a heart that is responsive to God. And he says, I'll start to lead you in obedience. So salvation doesn't, is not predicated on obedience. Salvation comes simply by responding and then the obedience to God follows that. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, we've been saved to good works, not saved by good works. Theologians will say it this way all the time. Uh, what the Spirit teaches us is how to become who we already are. You follow me on that? The Spirit's teaching us how to live up to our identity that we already have. He, he trains us how to become more like He already sees us. And, and man, this was weird for me to kind of grasp uh, in my earlier years of Christianity. I, I didn't know where the line stopped between how much does God do and like how much am I supposed to, to kind of get in there and get my hands dirty? Like how much is God, how much is my own willpower, if that makes sense. And, and here's, here's a helpful verse that, that sort of steered me in this. Uh, Galatians 5 says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, and, and the word picture there is like uh, almost like a marching band, like uh, let us keep in step. There's like a drum major in front and, and our job is to keep up with the drum major. Uh, you could think of it almost like as a dance uh, that, that there's like a lead partner and, and you're active with the partner, but you're following the lead of the partner, right? That you're following the lead of the spirit, so to speak. And so that begs the question, well, well how do we keep in step with the spirit? Like, what does that exactly mean? Uh, there are two bedrock foundational practices. These are spiritual disciplines that, that if you are not walking in, uh, there, there is no walking in the Spirit. There is no keeping in step with the Spirit. You cannot keep in step with the Spirit if you are not doing these two practices. Here's the, here they are. Time in prayer with God and time in His Word. There's just no such thing as being in step with the Spirit if you are not doing those two things. Now, it's perfectly good and perfectly okay to come to God, like right now, and say, hey, I, I don't have the desire to want to read your word. Would you help me? Would you give me that desire? Would you give me a desire to pray? Because I, I don't have these things. I don't feel the compulsion and the desire to want to do these things. But God, would you change my heart to crave that? And then, and then our job is to just start trying to practice it and we may do well for a little bit and we'll probably fail get back up do a little bit longer fail get back up go a little bit longer like this is the christian walk this is kind of how it plays out and before you know it now you're stringing together longer and longer seasons of obedience longer and longer seasons of prayer in his word 
and you will find yourself more in tune with what the Spirit wants. You'll find yourself more in tune with how He's trying to correct and discipline. This is great news for us today. God cleanses us from our filthiness and gives us a new nature. So here's how I want to wrap our time up. I want to wrap our time up with just two little questions. We'll call it the pre-op diagnosis. Uh, The Bible's very clear on the diagnosis of man. We are sinners. We're sinners and we're in need of a new nature. So in our notes, we'll say it like this. You need to be cleansed and you need to receive a new heart. If what you take away from this today is, I just got to try harder to be a better person, you have completely missed Christianity. You have completely missed what this whole thing is about. You have fallen into the lie of legalism. And it's an exhausting, deadly trap. The wonderful news of Christianity, the wonderful news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to make us clean. And not only has he come to make us clean, but he's come to give us a new nature, a heart that craves holy, godly things so that following him would no longer be begrudging and resentful, but would be the delight of our heart. That's the pre-op. What about the post-op? What what happens after surgery takes place? Two questions for you to consider. Are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Uh, Are you taking that time to be in the Word of God, uh, to seek Him in prayer, to know, God, where are you leading? God, how are you leading this dance? Where are you leading the marching band, so to speak. How how do we keep in step with where you're going? Because I know how life is. Life gets busy, gets chaotic. It's easy to put those things to the side. We have to be wise to take them back up, that we might stay in step with him. Uh, The second question I have for this post-op follow-up, what sin needs to be cut out? I know that when surgeons do uh, certain operations, In the post-op, one of the things that they are looking out for very carefully is infection. They'll usually run like a course of antibiotics through your body to fight off any kind of infection. Uh, Because all it takes is like one little bacteria, one little virus, one little germ to get into your bloodstream and start to multiply exponentially. And before you know it, you have a huge problem on your hands. Uh, sin works the exact same way. Sin worms its way into our lives almost imperceptibly. Like you can't, even, you can't even really feel it as it starts to worm its way in. And then before you know it, it's just growing and feasting on you. Uh, it's not a sign of spiritual weakness for a Christian to admit, hey, this sin has crept back in. I, I need to kill it. I need to cut this out. It's not weakness to admit that. That's That's spiritual maturity and wisdom. So what sin has wormed its way back in that you need to cut out? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this time together. Help us, God. Once again, I I pray this in the beginning. I pray this now. Help us to not just understand this, but to live it. 
Jesus, thank you that you have come to make us clean. Spirit of God, thank you that you are the one that makes us into new creations. Teach us how to become more like who we already are. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.